Well, good morning again. <laughs> it's a beautiful, chilly morning, but I didn't think it was supposed to snow quite that much. But I looked out; it kept my phone kept saying it was snowing. I kept looking out, and it's like it's not snowing. And then about ten o'clock last night, I looked out again, and I was like, "Oh, my car's covered! <laughs> Yay!" But thankfully, it's a very light snow, so it came off pretty quick, and. Thank you to Andy, who came out this morning and cleared off the sidewalks and the parking lots and all that. So, He's going to look at you all mean because he didn't want that. <laughs> Last week, we started a brand new series called The Book of Acts. It's called uh, The Church on the Move. And we're going to be in the first third of the Book of Acts, really, kind of basically where they're in Jerusalem the whole time. And... Last week, what we looked at was Jesus appearing to his apostles over the course of about 40 days following his resurrection. And what he's doing during these 40 days is he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And want to zone in in particular on something we, we talked about, which was him giving his final command to them, which was in Acts 1, verse 8, where he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we talked about last week how this command still applies for us today. We are still to be witnesses for Christ in everything that we do. But granted, we are not in Jerusalem or Judea, Samaria. Um, so what we do is we look at the principles behind that, and we, we want to take our witness to our, our local area and to our region and globally. After this, Jesus was taken up into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us on uh, for, yeah, on our behalf. And this week, we're going to be looking at the next part. And we're going to finish out chapter one. We're going to look at a little bit of chapter two as well. Now, I was tempted to, when I was putting the sermon series together, because this is, Acts is, is a long book. Like, if we really wanted to do a deep dive in Acts, this would take us probably over a year to do. Um, I'm going to do what we do in about 10 weeks, 11 weeks. And uh, so there are times where we're going to not necessarily skip over things, but we'll probably uh, breeze over things a little bit. And I was tempted to do that with this part of chapter one because it was not necessarily the most exciting thing in the world. But then I got to reading it, and I was like, no, this is actually pretty good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it in there. And then we'll move to the part of chapter two that we're going to talk about. So let's start, and I'm going to read from uh, verses, Acts 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, so again, this is after the ascension, and what they're doing is they're following Jesus' command to wait, to stay in Jerusalem. You know, he told them that in, chapter, in the earlier part of chapter 1. He's, so I want you to go and you, you, you wait in Jerusalem. Stop leaving Jerusalem. 
And the ascension happened on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is what's described as a Sabbath day walk from Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that they just walked it on the Sabbath. It's how far you could walk on the Sabbath to not like break the rule that they had put in place for working too much. Because apparently if you walked longer than this, you were working. Um, I don't know what that had to do with anything. But the Sabbath day walk was 2,000 cubits, with a, which a cubit is basically the measurement from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. And so apparently it's variable too, but um, depending on the length of your arm. But generally it's about three quarters of a mile is uh, 2,000 cubits, a Sabbath day walk. Um, Mount of Olives stands over 300 feet over the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up on a hill as well. And apparently there's pretty impressive panoramic views from the top of the Mount of Olives. If you look out to the east, the Dead Sea is out there. You're going from a pretty high level down to a very low level with the Dead Sea. And beyond the Judean Desert, it's out there. If you look to the west, you've got Jerusalem itself, and more importantly, the Temple Mount is there that you can see. Mount of Olives is 2,700 feet above sea level. And so I was trying to figure out a good comparison for that. And so I went and looked up on the good old internet, what are the highest points in Indiana? And I found one. The highest point in Indiana is some weird remote place over near Richmond. Richmond is not, I would not consider that a high point. But apparently there's, what's, there's a hill there. It doesn't seem very high, but it's, it's, it's the, highest, the highest point, apparently. So I wanted to look at an actual hill. So I looked at uh, the Weed Patch Hill over in Brown County State Park, and that's at 1,058 feet above sea level. And uh, that's, I think, the one that has the fire tower on it that you can climb up. And uh, so it would take you know, a couple more of those to get to where the Mount of Olives is. If you know Lookout Mountain down near Chattanooga, that is 2,389 feet. So we're getting closer, about uh, 300 feet short of where the Mount of Olives is. I'm just trying to give you some good idea of how tall this thing is. I don't know why. It has nothing to do with anything. (laughs) I find it interesting, so I'm hoping you find it interesting. Anyway... They go back to Jerusalem. They go to the upstairs room where they were staying. It's not necessarily the same one from the, uh, the Last Supper, but it is uh, where they were staying. Then Luke gives us a list of apostles here. And the apostles are listed as Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Now, Luke also gives a list in his gospel, in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. However, there are two except. well, there's one exception, and then there's one change. The one exception, of course, is that Judas Iscariot is not mentioned. And there's a good reason for that, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. The second thing that's kind of different about it is the order change a bit. So the order in uh, Andrew is listed earlier. He's listed second in Luke's, the gospel version. And then he's moved down actually to fourth in this list. And then John gets moved up to second. So it goes Peter, John, and James, and Andrew. 
Now, some believe that Luke is implicitly referring to importance because a lot of times when you're writing in in Greek, Hebrew, the word order is important. How you order things is important. So, like, first is more prominent. And um, the commentators that I was reading, they, they directly... They, they say that, you know, he is directly mentioning Peter, James, and John as the more important um, of the list of disciples, especially for the book of Acts, because that's kind of who we follow a little bit more. Uh, the commentator John Polhill writes that this gives prominence to Peter, John, and James, the only apostles who have any individual role in the narrative of Acts. Now, there's not only the 11 apostles who are in this room together. In verse 14, it says, the women, the women who followed Jesus, those who were uh, among the first to see the empty tomb. You have Mary, Jesus' mother, and then you have his brothers who were there as well. Now, his brothers, that's a, that's a new and interesting development, really, because Jesus' brothers did not follow him early on. Uh, Mark 6.3 lists his brothers, James. Judas, or we know him as Jude, Joseph, and Simon. So they would be half-brothers, of course. They would be like the natural-born sons of Mary and Joseph. But they had not believed. John 7, 5 says, for his own brothers did not believe in him. But now they do, apparently. So they must have been witness to his resurrection. Okay, so again, they're following Jesus' command to wait, right? But they're not not doing anything while they're waiting. They're not idle. So what are they doing? Well, Scripture tells us they are constantly in prayer. They're continually and together in prayer. You see the unity in this. And they are waiting. They're waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised to them. But then they do another thing. Because they replaced Judas. Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve originally. And he eventually betrays Jesus, leads the Romans and or well the uh, the religious leaders and their people to go and, and arrest him. And he's he takes money for this, I think it's thirty pieces of silver. But eventually I think it racks him with guilt. He tries to give the money back, and he eventually hangs himself and dies. In Acts 1, verse 15, it says that in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Good morning. Um, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called, their field, called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. That someone would be close to Christ and fall away, betray him, that was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, in the book of Psalms. Psalm 41.9 says that even my close friend, someone I trusted, who shared my bread, has turned against me. Peter then recaps the events. Luke has a little aside there, a little parenthetical, 
to flesh it out a little bit more. And in verse 20, though, Peter quotes a couple of psalms. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. And these are only a few of the verses that talk about the one who would betray Jesus in the book of Psalms. But one of the things to think about, though, is all of these things were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. The oldest manuscripts that we have of Psalms, a complete version of Psalms, I believe, is from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated between the 3rd century B.C. and the 1st century A.D. And so they would have been even before then that they were written, that things were written. These were copies, not the originals. So I just find that interesting, too. Um, so it's time to replace Judas among the twelve. Verse 21. Therefore, it's to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord, the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So you got some important qualifications here to meet, to be able to become one of the, the twelve again. This person needed to have been with them from the time of basically all of Jesus' ministry, from his baptism to his resurrection. And there are two candidates that come up. Verse 23 says, So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. A couple of interesting things to note here. Casting lots was a normal thing to do. It was a normal way to figure out what God wanted you to do. It's not a random chant, or it's not a random tossing of a dice. It is, they felt directed by God. And it was one of the ways that they determined God's will. They had uh, multicolored dice, and, and depending on how it landed, you were either the person or you were not the person, and it would, they would kind of will it down. With only two people, you were either the person or not the person. Um, but then the second thing is another thing that gets pointed out among the commentaries, that, that both of these candidates are named candidates, right? But one has three names, and he's listed first. It's Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. And the commentator writes that this is the, the text is giving him prominence. It's kind of like what we were talking about with the list of the apostles. You know, the first person is the prominent one. And he's got three names, so he's automatically cool, I guess. Um, but you think, as you're reading this, you're like, oh, this is going to be the guy that gets chosen. Because he seems more prominent. But it's just a, it's a subtle reminder that God's ways are not always our ways. And, you know, it, it's not Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justice. It's Matthias that is chosen. So now, the apostles have waited in Jerusalem, as Jesus have said. They've prayed. They've replaced Judas with Matthias. Now they're about to experience a radical change of everything in their lives another radical change of everything in their lives because they've had one. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven 
and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So let's set the scene. It's Pentecost. Pentecost is a pilgrimage festival. It happened seven weeks after Passover, and it was to celebrate the end of the harvest. In the Old Testament, it's called the Festival of Weeks or the Festival of the First Fruits. Pentecost itself literally means 50th. So it's 50 days following Passover. It is one of the larger pilgrimages where Jewish people from all over the region would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the end of the harvest. And so here, we've got all of Jesus' followers together in one place. Now, we don't know if it's all 120 that got mentioned or if it's just the 12. It doesn't really say, but from context, we kind of figure that it's the 120 that are together. But they're all there when suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind comes from heaven, and it fills the house. Now, the first thing that came to my mind with this, because I live in Indiana, is a tornado, right? And it talks about the sound of it. You know, what, what do we always say the sound of a tornado is like? Train. train. And I, loved, I, lo- I like trains a lot, so, you know, I know what a train sounds like. It's awesome. But that, that's what comes to mind, is the sound of a train, or the sound of a tornado, Wind is associated with the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures. Both the Greek and the Hebrew words for spirit are used for wind. The Greek word is pneuma. The Hebrew word is ruach. And, and they're both used for spirit and wind. And it makes sense. Because when you think about it, wind is something that you cannot see in and of itself. But you see the effects of it. Right? You see what it is affecting. Like you see the trees blowing. You see a flag blowing in the wind. You can feel it, but you don't see it. And it's the same with the Spirit. You don't see the Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Spirit. Jesus talks about this in John 3 8. He says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has come and filled this place in an amazing way. And then something even more amazing, I think, happens. In Acts 2, verse 3, it says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now try to put yourself in this scene. Try to imagine what this might be like. Like I think about it, I think I would be terrified. It's not how we normally picture this, though, because we've read this so often. And we've seen paintings of it, right? You know, there's always beautiful paintings of this where everybody looks so serene and calm. And they've got this little flicker of fire above their head. It says... Sound of a violent wind is going through there. And, and floating fire is not something that you normally would, I think, be like, oh, look at that. <laughs> that looks cool. No. No, I, I, like, I, chaotic is kind of what I'm thinking. Like, a little bit more chaotic. There are some paintings where, I mean, the brush strokes are just very, just, it's, it's very spiraled and stuff. And, and I look at that and I'm like, yeah, that's what I think it's like. 
says that the, the fire, tongues of fire, which not literal tongues that are on fire, that would be disturbing. Um, I wouldn't put it past God to do something like that, but uh, reading some of the things like cherubim. But the... Uh, but, it, it, you know, if you think of like a torch or something, you know, it kind of can look like a tongue of fire, right? And so that goes over everybody, and then the Spirit fills them. And then they start to speak in other tongues, which, you know, the language there is, is kind of fun. But they speak in other tongues as the Spirit enables them. What this is, it's languages that are not their own. And it... it was might have been a little incoherent at first because you got a whole bunch of people talking in languages that aren't theirs. But what it does is it kind of harkens back to the Tower of Babel, if you really think about that in the book of Genesis. Tower of Babel, if you know the story, is from Genesis 11, I third 10, 11, 11. Um, and humans are banding together to build a tower to reach God. Be like, I am so impressive, I can build a tower to reach God, and God's like, <sighs> and he confuses their language, and they scatter, right? But now, God's using language, and he's going to start bringing people back to himself through this. Verse 5, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this crowd or heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Again, we got to remember the setting for this. They're in Jerusalem. They're in the city. And there's a festival going on where a lot of people are traveling to Jerusalem. But there's also the fact that Jerusalem was a city that was full of descendants of people from the diaspora, where the Jews were dispersed following the conquest of uh, Jerusalem by Babylon and Assyria. And so they were in steeped in other cultures and languages where their, their descendants were, or ancestors were. And so they probably have some of that, still have that cultural uh, part of it. But they come across a scene where these people are praising God. They're declaring the wonders of God, but they're hearing it in their own language. And it shocks them. Because somehow they, they can just tell that these people are Galileans. Um, and as we'll see in a little bit, like Galileans, not, or at least the, the apostles, not necessarily viewed as the most educated people in the world. So they're seeing and they're hearing this, and it's people from a wide variety of places. Here's a map from everywhere that is named here in this passage. And so you got Jerusalem there in the middle. The Mediterranean is the, the white space just to the left. And then you've got Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, like all the way west into Rome. 
you go all the way east into like Mesopotamia and Media and Elam. So you're going into Arabia, you're going into Iraq, into those areas. You go north up into Asia Minor where Turkey is now. You've got northern Africa, Crete there, all over the, the ancient world here. And they're coming to Jerusalem and they're hearing their language. They're hearing their dialect. That's the Greek word that is uh, translated as languages in verse 8 is literally dialectos, where we get dialect from. And they're praising God. There's two responses to them praising God. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. You got two responses. Some are amazed. They're perplexed. They're like, what does this mean? What is going on? The other side, the other response like these, they're making fun of them. They're like, these people are drunk. They've had too much wine. I've had wine. I'm not going to say I got better at speaking another language when I've had wine. But I don't know. Now, because of this, there is a response that comes from Peter. But that's what we're going to look at next week. So as we start to wrap this up, how can we apply the things that we were talking about here today? First thing is going back to the chapter one, and we're talking about waiting again. First thing is sometimes we've got to wait on the Lord. Sometimes we've got to wait on the Lord. And sometimes, a lot of times, it's for our own good to do that because we... You know, we might want to try and go a little bit too fast, a little bit ahead of God, because you know you got some people. I, I know some of you. You're Type A people. You're you're go getters, and you might go a little bit ahead of God, or or go ahead of God how He wants. And so He's teaching you to slow it down, be a little patient sometimes. I I'm not. You know, we sometimes we go too fast, and I'm not one that goes too fast. I'm wasted over cross country, natural sprinter. Very dangerous over short distances. Although those distances are getting a lot shorter as I get older. (laughs) What do we do, though, while we wait? That's the big question. Sometimes we've got to wait, but what do we do while we wait? Are we to sit idle and do nothing? Of course not. Of course not. We are waiting, but we don't need to be idle. The apostles, they were waiting for the Spirit, but they were constantly in prayer together. And they were doing business. They, they replaced Judas. And so we can also be doing things wherever we're at. In the book Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby talks about, you know, you're always looking to see where God's working. And then you go join him there. But sometimes you're kind of waiting to see where God's working. But what God wants you to do is keep working where you're at doing what you're doing. Because you're not just working for him, you're working to build your relationship with him. 
Now, the second thing that we need to think about in relation to this, in applying this, is the power of the Holy Spirit is very real and very potent. And we just see a scratching of the surface here in this passage. As followers of Christ, when we made the decision to follow him, God's Spirit takes up residence with us. This was the first time he did that. But it's his power which works through us when we submit ourselves to him. The apostles did that, and they started to do some pretty amazing things. We're going to see some of those things as we go through this part of the book of Acts. And we can still do pretty amazing things, or God can still do pretty amazing things through us. But there's a problem because we can also grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in the book of Ephesians, which we looked at you know, a few months ago. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. And the word quench in the Greek literally means to extinguish something like a fire. There's a number of ways to quench the Spirit. But one of those, one of the biggest ones probably is just not submitting yourself to the Lord. To live in contrary how God would have you live. To live in perpetual sin, habitual sin. You're going to quench the Spirit when doing that. So we've got Pentecost. It's one of the most important days in the history of the church. The Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. We see mentions of the Holy Spirit. But this is the time where he takes residence permanently in the story. And he takes up residence in every believer now. And he transforms us as well. It's not just to come and be like, hey, I'm going to do some cool things through you. It is to transform you to be more like Christ. He empowers us to live like we've never lived before. To become more like Christ. To be a witness for Christ and his resurrection. And so let us not quench the spirit. Let us submit ourselves to him. We could say the same thing as this poem. Holy Spirit, all divine, dwell within this heart of mine. Cast down every idle throne. Reign supreme and reign alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is our prayer that we would submit to you and your leading, your guiding. You have given us the most precious and wonderful gift of your spirit to take up residence in us as your followers to lead us, to guide us and to transform us to be more like Jesus. And Father, we are so thankful for that gift. But sometimes we know that we mess up and we don't do the things that we're supposed to do. We are like what Paul says, I do the things I don't want, and I don't do the things I do want to do. 
And we know sometimes, Lord, that that does quench your spirit. But we ask your forgiveness. We repent from those things. Help us to continue to move in the direction that you want us to move. Help us too to wait for that direction that you give us so that we can, can work where you're working so we can be more effective for the kingdom and draw others to you. Because that's really what we're still doing here. It's always to point more people to you. That's why you still delay your return to give us the opportunity. And we thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have entrusted us in this mission with you. But we know that you do all the heavy lifting, and we're thankful for that too. Father, we love you. We love that you sent your son to leave heaven to become a human so that he could live the perfect life to die for us, to cover our sin, to take the punishment that was due us. And Lord, we take this time in our service to remember Christ's sacrifice through communion. We take the bread representing his body. We take the juice representing his blood. And we remember each and every week that we meet, we remember the sacrifice of your son for us. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.